Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the Supreme Court hearing on whether Boris Johnson illegally shut down Parliament, what are the chances of the government losing, and what might happen next. Plus, we'll be looking back at the Liberal Democrats' conference in Bournemouth, the party's shiny new policy of revoking Article 50, and what to expect from Labour's next gathering in Brighton. I'm delighted to be joined by our legal correspondent, Jane Croft, FT's contributing editor, David Allen Green, Deputy Opinion Editor, Miranda Green, and Chief Political Correspondent, Jim Picard. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. And we always appreciate nice reviews. Brexit returned to the courts this week as the highest court in the land considered whether Boris Johnson acted illegally in proroguing Parliament for five weeks in effective an effort to thwart the efforts of MPs to debate Brexit. In some very testing scenes, judges representing the government and pro-Remain MPs, led by the Scottish Nationalist MP Joanna Cherry, sparred over whether prorogation is even a judicial matter and whether the government acted out of sorts. So Jane Croft, could you begin by just giving us the background to this case here because we've had rulings from courts in England and courts in Scotland on the prorogation question and it reached the Supreme Court this week. That's right, yeah. So how we arrived here is that there are two conflicting court decisions from the English and Scottish courts. So the highest court in Scotland, which has got, as you know, a separate legal system, ruled last week that Boris Johnson's advice on prorogation was unlawful and clandestine in a case brought by more than 70 parliamentarians, including Joanna Cherry. By contrast, another case brought in England and Wales in the High Court in London, it was a case brought by Gina Miller, the anti-Brexit campaigner. It basically found that her case, also on prorogation, was not able to be considered by the courts because it was a matter of high policy and politics and it was not reviewable by the courts under Britain's largely unwritten, partially codified constitution. So the key battleground in the two appeals really is justiciability. Do the courts have have any ability to review this decision or is it a matter of politics? And generally the courts have been very wary about intruding on so-called forbidden territory of this type of political territory under the constitution. And what we do know is that Boris Johnson and his Downing Street team decided to prorogue Parliament in early August. Some documents that were revealed by the Scottish courts stated that. And essentially, Mr Johnson and his senior ministers advised the Queen to prorogue Parliament. She went along with it as she would normally do so. And it seems to be the crucial question has been, did they mislead 
the Queen on this because the reason that the government has been saying in public for proroguing Parliament was to introduce a new legislative agenda and a new Queen's speech. Whereas in fact, what we really know is it's about stopping MPs debating Brexit. The Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, was caught on a hot mic admitting that. Yeah, this was the thrust of the arguments from Joanna Cherry's legal team and also from David Panic, who was a barrister acting for Gina Miller, that in reality, the effect of the prorogation was to shut down Parliament, to silence Parliament when time is of the essence and in the run-up to the October the 31st deadline on Britain leaving the EU with or without a deal. So this was a kind of thrust of it, that basically it was being done for political reasons. And actually one of the interveners was John Major, the former Tory Prime Minister, whose barrister Edward Garnier was also arguing this was a political motive, that the reasons given by the government in some government documentation couldn't be true and it actually had to be a political motivation for doing this rather than this kind of so-called exciting new agenda of domestic legislation promised in the Queen's speech. So, David Allen Green, you've been watching a lot of the case this week and writing some excellent stuff for the FT, examining it. Can you just outline what the legal issues were that were put forward in the Supreme Court? Yes. Lawyers like to think in systems, step by step. Politics is messy. Society is messy. Lawyers like mathematicians and programme coders like to break things down into steps. And this case breaks itself down into the following steps. First of all, there's the law. That comprises two questions here. First, is this a matter for the courts at all? This is the so-called justiciability issue. If it is justiciable, if it is a matter for the courts, then what is the substantial law? What is the legal test which the court has to apply? Once you've identified the test, but not before, you then come to the second step, which is the evidence. Yes, there is compelling evidence that the government has, at best been unclear and probably at worst dishonest about the reasons for the prorogation. But that evidence only matters once the Supreme Court has identified the test it's going to apply. So if the court decides it goes to improper motive, bad faith, the government had the wrong reason for doing this, then that evidence will be relevant. If the court, on the other hand, takes a view that it actually doesn't matter what the motivation is, it's perfectly okay to have a political motivation, then that evidence will be less important. It might be other evidence which is important, like the effect of a prorogation, or whether there was just not sufficiently good reasoning either for having a prorogation or the five-week length. And once you've got the evidence and you've identified the tests, you've got the final question, which actually is going to be a tough one here. So even if these hurdles are jumped over... What would the remedy be? What can the court actually do about this, at least without overreaching into the realm of politics? Well, let's unpack some of those things, because this is a very good way of analysing where we're at here, because this issue of prorogation has been obviously used by prime ministers before. The two examples that are cited quite a lot, one was Clement Attlee when he prorogued parliament, mostly for technical reason, in his post-war government. Another one was Sir John Major, and he prorogued parliament in the run-up to the 1997 general election to void questions on the cash for questions scandal engulfing his government. Both of those were for political reasons, you could argue. And this comes to your first point. Is this a matter for the Supreme Court. The test here isn't, oh, it's politics, let's leave it to the politicians. Might be a little bit, but not really. If the judges are taking their job seriously, what they need to identify is a legal test, a legal standard they can actually use. Because they can't just go, 
er, we don't like this, or er, there's bad faith, and go, we're going to go against it. They need to identify a legal principle which they can apply. And this is the problem, because although there may be previous examples of prorogation being used for political purposes, there is no direct precedent at law for this case, which means that the justices have to look at other constitutional cases and then by analogy glean a principle from those cases to apply here. If they can't do that, it doesn't matter how horrified they may be at this, it's just not going to be justiciable because there is no legal way of answering the problem. Yeah, one key point the government did make in this case is that there is a lack, as David says, of manageable judicial standards for prorogation. Is three weeks enough? Is two weeks? Is five weeks okay? This is the problem. There is no kind of bar or standard that courts can apply. David Panic, who was representing Gina Miller, a great deal of his advocacy was on the basis of these are the principles from other cases, which if you look at them in the round, will give you a standard to apply here. A lot of people looking at the judicial system and the legal system from the outside will just think, oh, well, it's up to the judges to think subjectively with any sort of political bias, whether they intervene or not. No, the judges need to find a legal way of dealing with this. And that's going to be problematic here. One of the cases that David Pant did mention a lot was the case brought by Unison, the union, about employment tribunal fees. The case was about whether or not employment tribunal fees were too high or should be imposed at all. And in that case, the judges were not asked to dictate how much the tribunal fees should be, but just whether or not imposing the fees was basically a bar on people coming to court and seeking to get remedies from the court and to vindicate their human rights. Although tactically it was very sensible of panic to use that case, because that is one of the greatest decisions of Lord Reid, who is Deputy President of the Supreme Court at the moment and was one of the sceptics on the Miller case last time. So going to one of his judgments is very good advocacy by David Panic. Yes. Now, Jane, could you just briefly mention some of the evidence that was put forward there? Could you briefly just summarise for us the case that were put forward by either side in this for both of the points that David mentioned there? Yeah, I mean, the government's main case was that the court should not intrude in this area. This is non-justiciable. It's a matter of policy and politics and the court shouldn't intervene in this. The wider point, I think, from the Gina Miller barrister and also the Joanna Cherry barrister was that by shutting down Parliament, effectively, the government's using prorogation to do what they want, to silence Parliament at a very crucial point in the country's history. And the court should intervene, uh, quite right to intervene, as the only constitutional actor still standing after Parliament's been shut down. This was the key difficulty with the government's case. The government used the line again and again, oh, this isn't for the court to intervene, this is a matter for Parliament. But how can Parliament regulate the executive if it isn't sitting? And so the issue really for the Supreme Court is how do you safeguard the sovereignty of Parliament when for fairly obscure constitutional historical reasons this Prime Minister has a residual power to shut Parliament Mm. down completely almost for as long as he or she would want. Because outsiders who are not legal experts will just look at this and totally agree with your point there and say, it's kind of mad, like, isn't the remedy for this, and this comes on to the next point, to hand this power to Parliament to decide when it sits and when it doesn't sit. That would be the obvious way to deal with this. There are three ways of shutting the doors of Parliament. If Parliament is not sitting on any given date for one of three reasons. One, because it's in recess. 
There's no activity going on on the floor of the House. Select committees carry on. You can ask parliamentary questions, but there's just no MPs turning up for debates. That's what usually happens over the summer. It's what usually happens during conference season. It's voted on by MPs. You can't have a recess without the MPs' approval. The second way you can close Parliament down is by dissolution, which also used to be part of the Queen's prerogative, but that's now been overtaken by a statute called the First Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. That means Parliament is closed down, but then there's a general election within 25 days or something like that. And then the third way is prorogation. That closes Parliament down completely for as long as the Prime Minister wants, with the idea that a new parliamentary session can start quite soon. As was said in court, it's usually quite a mundane power. If you had had me here a month or two months ago and asked, could you judicially review prorogation, I would have thought, well, what's the point? Who would ever want to bother with that? Because it's usually only used in a very matter-of-fact way. Yeah, it's used for five days normally when a session comes to an end and the government genuinely wants to put forward a new policy agenda. And a lot of the case law on whether the Crown can intervene and whether it can be judicially reviewed goes to the historic right of Crown to dissolve Parliament whenever he or she wanted. That's been overtaken by statute. And one of the cleverest points which came out of the advocacy over this case was on behalf of John Major by his barrister, Edward Garnier QC, who also used to be a former MP. And he said, the effect of dissolution is to pass things back to the electorate. So that is a good reason why it shouldn't have been judicially reviewable. But the effect of prorogation is in favour of the executive. And that means there's every reason to make this reviewable by the courts. Now, Jane, this is probably the most difficult question out of all of this. We've had the hearing this week. The court is now mulling over its decision. We're expected to hear it early next week. There's talk about Tuesday morning. We'll see when it emerges. Based on everything you've heard and everything that's been said, what's your sense on what might come out of all this? Well, I think it's quite possible the government could lose. That's my sense of it. When these cases first came to the High Court, I did see the point about justiciability. This is not a matter for the courts. But I think given the fact that Parliament's been shut down and silenced and effectively the democratically elected MPs, the business of Parliament stops, I can see why the courts would see this as justiciable. And once you've got over that big, big hurdle, then I think it's quite easy to start inferring and looking at motivation and things like that. So I think the justiciability hurdle, to me, at the start of this process was quite quite high. And I think they've probably cleared that this week. So that seems to be the main point, I think. So if that happens, David, and we get this ruling and the Supreme Court, what can it actually do? Just on the prospects of the case, I think it's far too close to call either way. But if it is found in the favour of the claimants, then the court has to do something. And this is where it becomes incredibly tricky very quickly. There are certain things courts can do. One thing they can do called injunctions, another thing they can do are called declarations, there's other things they can do. What should the court do if it finds in favour of the challengers? Well, at bottom, a declaration, i.e. a statement of something being lawful or unlawful. Panic was really aiming for this in his submissions. He realises the judges don't want to actually become too political. So essentially, he's inviting the courts to say, that prorogation was unlawful, either it was not a good enough reasons or it was for wrongful purpose. And then just basically passing it back to Parliament and the government to sort out amongst themselves. I can see the judges being attracted to that. The problem is, is what happens if the government and Parliament don't sort that out amongst themselves? And that might require the court to make some sort of injunction, a mandatory order or a coercive order of some kind. 
the judges will not want to do that easily. If the court comes out in favour of the challengers, I suspect there's going to be a two-stage remedy where there's a declaration and then something which lawyers call liberty to apply, which means you can go back to court and get another remedy if things aren't sorted out between the parties. But that said, I don't want to race ahead too far. I think this case is far too close to call. There's another sort of possibility as well, that the courts could find this justiciable, so they could find that the courts can intrude on it, but actually find that Johnson didn't act unlawfully. It's quite possible that that could happen because, again, you've got the government documents, but is that enough evidence for them to infer motive? If you look at the judges' records on these questions, it's quite evenly based. So you couldn't imagine five, six decisions either way, which, given the 5248 referendum, would be quite (laughs) fitting in the circumstances. And just finally, one last quick point, Jane. If that outcome does occur, which I've seen some people on Twitter raising as a Mm. possibility... This is going to be a big moment for the Supreme Court, which yeah. which has only existed for 10 years. And I think, as some commentators have said this week, this will politicise the courts in a way that we haven't seen before. And once it's been ruled as something they can have a say on, if Mr Johnson tried to prorogue Parliament in the future, we'll be straight back to the Supreme Court. If Jeremy Corbyn yeah. became Prime Minister, yeah. we'd be back to the Supreme Court once yeah. again if he tried to prorogue. It sends a shot across the bowels to politicians, basically. I mean, it's effectively a way of the judges sending a shot across the bows to anyone that tries to do this again and saying, look, this is justiciable. It's our territory. I love legal commentary. I love court commentary. But this should not have ever been a matter for the courts. After this, prorogation needs to be put onto a statutory basis and only been done with the approval of MPs. The Liberal Democrats gathered for their annual party conference in Bournemouth this week and it seemed to be a rather jolly affair. The party bagged another new MP in the former Conservative, Sam Geemer, who joined at the beginning of the conference. They also picked up a new policy of revoking Brexit without another referendum. The Lib Dems were boasted by two opinion polls that, after their conference, put them in second place ahead of the Labour Party. Are they right to be optimistic? And with Labour heading to Brighton for its annual jamboree, should they be worried about this Liberal surge? Miranda Green, you were down in Bournemouth for this. Just tell us what the mood of the conference was like. Obviously, bagging Sam Geemer was a big moment for the party. It was another MP, someone who was a minister last year and someone who was very much a key part of David Cameron's modernisation project and somebody who, in many ways, is still a deep conservative. I think it's fair to say that the atmosphere in Bournemouth with the Lib Dems was quite sort of heady this year because there were defectors coming out of the woodwork from both left and right. And they've had this surge in the polls. They feel that with Joe Swinson, they've got a leader who's so different from both Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn that she looks attractive to almost anybody who's moderate. So there was quite a lot of getting carried away, I felt, in Bournemouth. Although, you know, one has to give them credit for their positioning so far on Brexit, which means that lots and lots of Remainers are giving up on Labour and flocking to the Lib Dems. But there was a lot of talk of when we become the government, which actually, even given their position in these two polls where they're in second place, Matthew Goodwin was doing some number crunching this morning and he tweeted out that that still only means the Lib Dems at 38 MPs. So for a third party, it's unbelievably difficult to make a major breakthrough. And since the near-death experience of 2015, 
slight, tiny, almost imperceptible recovery in 2017, if they were back up into a block of, say, 40, 50, 60 MPs, that would be quite a considerable recovery. But there was lots of talk around about the weirdnesses of first-past-the-post where if you can get yourself up to about 26% in the polls, if it's a four-way fight this time and a very unpredictable, volatile one, you can then start to put on really quite a dramatically increased number of MPs. But it did all slightly get out of hand. And as you rightly said, they had this controversial new policy, which was to still work towards a second referendum. That's quite important still. But if there's a general election before that happens, to stand on a pure revoke platform. So that's a hardening of the anti-Brexit position. Some people thought that that was a kind of uneasy step to take because claiming a mandate in a general election when you could be winning on 30-odd percent of the vote, is that okay to then overturn a referendum where 52% for leave? So there was a certain amount of controversy, but the optimistic types in the Lib Dems, and they are all pretty much optimistic because otherwise why would you bother to be a Lib Dem? They were saying this is fantastic because it gets the attention, it's a kind of heat-seeking missile, that was the phrase, to remain voters. We'll just have to see whether it works and how it plays out. Because from afar, it did have that certain sense of, David Steele, go back to your constituencies and prepare for government, where, of course, the country is still, you know, if you put the Brexit party and the Conservatives together, they would still be way ahead in terms of where the Brexit vote is on all of this, Miranda. And the one thing that struck me, I totally understand where they're coming from on their policy of let's just revoke Article 15. I actually think... That's where the Brexit debate might be heading in October, because this idea of trying to force an extension, delay Brexit again, I think MPs might find themselves in a position that if they do want to stop a no deal, if Boris Johnson does pull the boundaries of the law, then revoking Article 50 is the only place to be. It's clear yellow, red water, whatever you want to call it, with Labour on that, and they clearly are now the most pro-Remain party. But A, what's that going to mean for those marginal voters, people who are uneasy about Brexit, but also uneasy about overturning it without a democratic event? And B, let's just say Brexit does happen in some form or another on October the 31st. Then when does that leave the party? That's very interesting. I actually think that your second point is being sort of overplayed a bit, because even if Brexit happens, I don't think there's any problem standing on a platform as being the pro-Europeans in Britain. And that's now an active, emotionally coherent block of people who will probably continue to vote for you. So I think that's slightly not such a concern. I think your first point is an extremely good one. How confident can they be that they're not repelling moderate voters by taking this very much more hardline anti-Brexit stance. I think the thing is, though, our politics has changed so much that there have been a couple of academic reports even this week which have shown that although the country is increasingly polarised on Brexit, you know, your identity is now, are you a leaver or are you a remainer? On a lot of other issues, still people cluster in the centre ground. So there's a sort of argument that if you can pull it off to be at one extreme of the Brexit polarity whilst being moderate or seen as moderate on most other policy issues, it could work for them. Let's face it, we even had Tony Blair this week talking about the decline of the moderate wings of both the main parties and how people are being pulled away to the Lib Dems. So I think there's quite a lot in play. They've got to be careful about the language. You know, Joe Swinson shouldn't really be talking about Corbyn's betrayal. I thought that was an error. I don't know what Jim thinks about that, but then you've had Emily Thornberry talking about the Lib Dems as a Taliban party on Brexit. This sort of escalation of the language is starting to feel a bit too culture war for my taste. 
So on that point, Jim Picard, what's Labour's general reaction to what's happened in Bournemouth this week? Because Labour's Brexit position is a referendum in all circumstances with Remain versus some form of Brexit deal on the ballot paper. And as Miranda of saying, senior Labour figures, even those who are very pro-Remain, have been quite critical of the Lib Dems' position. But they can't ignore the fact the Lib Dems have overtaken them now in two opinion polls. Yeah, exactly. So Jeremy Corbyn's Labour is very much under pressure from the Lib Dems because Remember that we think about 80% of the Labour membership are Remain. We think about 75% of Labour voters are Remain. And yet they have a leader who has been a Eurosceptic all his life. He very half-heartedly campaigned for Remain in 2016 because he thought that was what the party expected of him. But Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him would love this just to be over one way or another. And it's quite interesting that, yes, that policy you explained earlier is absolutely right. They would have a election, then they'd have a renegotiation, and then they'd have a referendum, and we don't know whether they would be in or out. And the fact that it's hurting my head trying to explain this when I write about Labour every day suggests that the average man or woman in the street is going to struggle with the clarity on this. And yes, although there are people like John McDonnell and Emily Thornberry and Keir Starmer who have said categorically that they would be remain in those circumstances, people in Jeremy Corbyn's office are privately saying, well, you know, we could get a renegotiation that would give us a really good deal with a customs union and a single market relationship where we would potentially campaign to be a Brexit party. So they are still caught in the middle and the more polarised society becomes, the more woolly Jeremy Corbyn looks on the big issue of the day. And the massive irony, as we all know, is that Jeremy Corbyn has the strongest views in many ways on an awful lot of political stuff and they have this incredibly radical manifesto in terms of what they would do in government and yet to the general public he looks like this slightly sort of woolly possibly confused guy. But this is the issue for Labour entering its party conference this weekend in Brighton that Mr Corbyn wants to talk about all manner of domestic things about redistribution, about taxes, about public service, the things that really matter to him. But it looks like once again it's all going to be about Brexit, partly because it's the big issue dominating the country, but also partly, as we were just talking about, because the Lib Dems have taken this new position and there'll be a lot of Labour MPs and activists who feel we need to react to this now. Yeah, there'll be a few other things that come out of it. There'll obviously be Corbyn's big speech. There'll be a John McDonnell speech where we're expecting some kind of policy announcement. But yeah, there's no getting away from it that when you look at the motions that have been sent in by constituency Labour parties from around the country, there are about 90 on Brexit. And the vast, vast majority of those are trying to push the leadership into a more categorically remain position. And we will have what they call a compositing meeting The one last year went on for six hours, right into the early hours. And during that process, the leadership will try and resist the members, which you may remember is the opposite of what Jeremy Corbyn used to say when he became leader about democratising the party and how he believed in listening to the membership and membership should form policy. Forget all that. He never really believed that, it seems, because they will try and ignore those 85-odd constituencies and come up with a motion that basically leaves them in the same position. So, yeah, there'll be other stuff going on. There'll also be a big debate about Labour's position on climate change and whether to go for a 2030 zero carbon target, which is 20 years earlier than the government's already quite ambitious target. So, you know, that's quite a serious policy debate that's going on. But, yeah, I think that most of the attention will, as always, be on Brexit and also on Labour's splits that are going on. We've got sort of people trying to deselect MPs, people from the left and mobilise. And it doesn't look like the most united party ever, does it?
And finally, Miranda, coming back to the Lib Dems for this for a moment, some former Labour MPs have joined the Lib Dems recently, like Luciana Berger, some former Tories, you know, Sarah Wurston, Sam Jima as well. There's been these rumours going around that even Tom Watson, Labour's deputy leader, is somebody who might think eventually about jumping fence to the Lib Dems. How are all these people going to sit within the party? Because they do have some quite different views on things. And I know the Lib Dems have always been split between the social Liberals and the economic Liberals, but it does seem that this broad church of people they're bringing in is quite disparate. It's really interesting, this. If you're going to be a one-issue party, you know, the anti-Brexit party, then you're sort of reaching for a kind of purity there, aren't you? And then they don't want to do that. The Lib Dems are aware that that's a danger. And now, as you quite rightly say, they've got people coming in both from the moderate wing of the Tory party and the Labour party. How do you turn that into something that's coherent, but that's also a fruitful debate about what the centre ground could be because we've said for years now there are lots of people on those two wings of the Tory and Labour parties who probably have more in common than they do with the extreme wings of their two parties but how do you actually pull that off in practice I think the Tom Watson thing is obviously incredibly intriguing because he's always been so snotty about the Lib Dems he described them as why would you join Banana Rama when you're already in the Beatles, you know, so his attitude to the Lib Dems must have shifted an awful lot if that's being rumoured about him. But I think a lot of things are on the march. I reckon that a lot of people in Labour, on the moderate wing of Labour, will be mulling some sort of reverse takeover where they all rush into the Lib Dems and try to turn it into a kind of Blairite party. And obviously there will be people in the Lib Dems who are aware of that and trying to resist it. But actually, with both of the main parties trying to turn themselves into narrow sects where they'll chuck you out if you're a heretic, I don't actually think that the Lib Dems will suffer from the idea that it's inclusive and they want a lot of viewpoints to bring us through a national crisis. Maybe not all of those defectors will stay in the party long term, but I think for now it helps their sales pitch to moderate voters, to be honest. But I think when you talk to Labour MPs about whether they might defect the Lib Dems, at the end of the day, they want to remain MPs and they know how incredibly difficult it is to be, as Miranda was saying earlier, in the third party in a two-horse race first-past-the-post system. You could look at the polls at the moment and say Labour is neck and neck with the Lib Dems and that probably does reflect how people emotionally feel right now. But don't forget that British voters in some ways are quite sophisticated in terms of they do tend to know if they live in a Lib Dem Tory marginal or if they live in a Labour Tory marginal. And an awful lot of left-leaning voters who are somewhere where the Lib Dems have never performed well in the past, that message of your vote for the Lib Dems is a wasted vote, it's still a powerful message, even if people do feel very strongly about hating Brexit and agreeing with the Lib Dems on Brexit, they may still be put off by that wasted vote argument. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Jane, David, Jim and Miranda for joining. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.